Right, so we are back in Isaiah uh, 38, and we are in the Psalm of Hezekiah. The Psalm of Hezekiah. We did all the background to this um, previous weeks, and um, we spoke about Hezekiah and his sickness, and how he was sick uh, almost to the point of death. And last week we took a little detour, and we spoke at length about this expression in verse 10, the gates of Sheol, and that led us ultimately uh, through long and winding circles, eventually to Matthew 16, and a better understanding of that passage. So this week we're returning, and we're going to do the Psalm of Hezekiah, um, because it is pretty much a psalm, um, which was written when he was sick and when he recovered. So let's, let's do that. I'm going to read from verses 9 through to the end of the chapter, and then we will pray, and then we'll study. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What then shall I say? For he has spoken to me. He himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you, as do I this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of Yahweh. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of Yahweh, the house of the Lord? Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study uh, this passage today, that you would help us to have insights, to be able to understand clearly your word, and Lord, that it would impact our lives, that it would change us, it would, it would mold us, that Lord, we would become more like Christ. Through the teaching of your word tonight, we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Okay. Chapter 38. Now, there's a few things here that we need to just look at. I think um, in many senses there needs to be a little bit of resolving here. Um, When you come to the end of the psalm, the last verse, why don't we start it? We'll start at the end, shall we? (laughs) Verse 21. Isaiah said, let him take a cake of figs and apply it to the uh, boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now, there's a few things here. Here we have this magnificent psalm of Hezekiah, and it wraps up the whole section. But for some reason, in the last verse, there's a mention of the methodology that is used for healing. And there is also um, a reference to the sign that he should go up to the house of Yahweh. Now we know that there was a sign because the sign was spoken about, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, the sun essentially going backwards on the sundial, verse 8. We saw that again in uh, Second Kings when we looked at the reference to it. And so in this whole section, um, we, we have this magnificent psalm, and then there is this reference at the end to the sign, which we've already dealt with, There's a reference to the method of healing. And when you just read through it, it seems really awkward. He deals with all the practicalities. And then there's this psalm. And then after the psalm, there's just these couple of verses at the end that seem really out of place. Nothing's out of place. The key is really to understand why has he put them there. And I think that when we understand the purpose of this psalm, what this psalm is driving at, what is emphasizing, then the last two verses will make perfect sense. So let's have a look at that, shall we? So, this is a writing of Hezekiah. Some people have uh, postulated that the word here, writing, should really be song. It involves the same Hebrew letters with different pointing. But um, no, no, it seems to me that writing is appropriate. I think the reason writing is used of a song rather than song is because the emphasis here is that it's Hezekiah who is actually writing this and Isaiah is just quoting him. This is not the words of Isaiah. Isaiah is and taking Hezekiah's song and putting it in his own words to fit into his own account, he is literally quoting it word for word. This is something that was previously written down, which in that day and age was unusual. Normally, if you were quoting somebody, you would simply you know, say, well, he said kind of like this. And then the writers of the scripture would, would be able to reword things so they have their own theological terms and connections and present it in their own way. That was perfectly normal and acceptable. Um, there weren't dictaphones in those days, you know. But Hezekiah has actually written this down. So this is word for word what Hezekiah wanted to say. And it's the writing after he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. So what we'll see here is that there are... There are aspects of this psalm that are there chronologically at a time when he was sick. But he's writing after his sickness. So in a sense, it's like his testimony. This is how things were, but now this is how they are now. That kind of thing. So let's have a look. Verse 10. I said, in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. 
This whole of this first section from verses 10 through 14 is what I am fond of calling the portion of acknowledgement. That whenever we have lament in scripture, we tend to have three aspects to biblical lament. The first is acknowledgement. Woe is me, this is the state of my being, this is how I am. B, beholding God, but you, O oh God, you, this is who you are. And C, because I'm in this state and because of who you are, I'm going to see cry out to you. And so we have this ABC of lament. Here, the beholding of God is very much um, uh, hidden, as it were, in the midst of the crying out to him. There's barely a glimpse of it. It's clear he knows who God is. The name of the Lord is used. And so he is beheld, no doubt. But these first five verses really emphasize the acknowledgement of his pain. This is a passage that deals with his condition. And not just his sickness physically, though remember, he would have been in pain. There would have been, um, we, we see at verse 21, a reference to boils. We're not quite sure what precisely that means and what the boils were. There are some who, who have argued, and I'm, I'm prone to agree, though I don't really know enough, that, that it, some sort of swelling, like a tumour, that he may have had what we would call today cancer, um, something along those lines. Um, but we don't know for sure. But he would have been in pain, and there weren't painkillers like we have today. And he would have been suffering, but it was his mental anguish that he was concerned about mostly. And so this is his description of his state. In the middle of my days I must depart. Middle of days refers essentially to the prime of life. Literally it is the noon time of my day. Noon being 12 p.m. You use the word noon here? I think, yeah, okay, I think you do. I, I, in England, we say midday. And people here think I mean just the middle of the day generally. But that means noon. It's a precise term in, in, in the UK. But it, it is literally the noon, the midday of my day. In other words, here I am living my life. And as we, we spoke about the last couple of weeks, he was 39 years old at this point. He's in the prime of his life. And it's going to be taken away. He is a sickness that leads you to death. And so it is in the middle of his days that he needs to depart. He is consigned to the gates of Sheol. In other words, he has to go through those gates and go to death. And he's consigned there. I don't like the translation for the rest of my years because it implies that the remainder of his years he's going to be sitting at the gates of Sheol, which is not what it's saying at all. Other versions talk about him being deprived of the residue of his days. I think that's a better translation. The idea that is being painted in verse 10 is he's in the middle of his life and that he is losing the remainder of his years and he is going to have to go through the gates of Sheol. Now look at verse 11. I said I shall not see Yahweh, Yahweh in the land of the living. This is as close as you're going to get to him beholding God. It's very clear from this and what he's saying that he knows God. This, this is God, God who is Yahweh. We have saw in our studies in Hezekiah the last couple of weeks that he is someone who tore down the high places. This is a person who has tried to worship God and to oversee the correct worship of God. He is not one of the bad kings. He is not like his father before him. He knows who God is. And his concern in dying is that he shall not see Yahweh in the land of the living. 
Now, in commentaries at this point, there is much discussion, and I just want to deal with this now and get out of the way. As we go through his comments regarding death, and specifically what he's going to not be able to do if he's dead, there is much in the commentaries suggesting that, well, poor Hezekiah, he didn't know as much as we know. Because here we are saying, well, you know what? For me, to, to live is Christ, but to die is gain, Paul would say. You know, oh, well, Hezekiah didn't know what Paul knew. Hezekiah didn't know that if he would die, that he would go to be with the Lord and that he'd be able to praise God and be in God's presence and yada, yada, yada. And so there is this, there is this often with this passage, this kind of, this kind of like um, accommodating Hezekiah and his lack of knowledge. Oh, poor Hezekiah, he was a simple man, he didn't know, and, and we should sort of, we should forgive him for that. And I don't buy any of that. I don't think that's what the passage is saying. And I don't think that's what Hezekiah knew either. Firstly, if Hezekiah died and went to Sheol, he wouldn't have gone to the presence of God. He wouldn't. Because Christ hadn't died for his sins, so he couldn't come to the presence of God. He was going to go to a place that, the, that was referred to in uh, Luke's Gospel, as we saw last time, as Abraham's bosom, to the side of Abraham, to be in fellowship with Abraham. He was going to be a place that Jesus, later on, when he spoke to the thief on the cross beside him, referred to as paradise. He was going to go to a good place, to be sure, absolutely. But he wasn't going to be in the presence of God. Now think about the implications of that for a minute. If you were a Jew under the Old Covenant, God dwelt with you. Not in you, but with you. The presence of God is there. Hezekiah has several times here in this text, in chapter 37, verse um, 1 and verse um, 14, he's gone to the temple. When Hezekiah wanted to seek after God, when Hezekiah wanted to approach God, he was able to go to the temple. God was there in his midst, not in Sheol. And that's the bizarre thing for the Old Testament saint. That when they went to Sheol, they went to a place of paradise. And yet at the same time, they went away from the presence of God. In a sense. That's important. That's significant. So firstly, I don't think that his knowledge is as slim as people might think. I think there is actually truth that he is expressing here. But I think also beyond that, his issue is this. And it's absolutely true. If he goes to be in Sheol, then he can't see Yahweh in the land of the living. He can't worship him here and now. However good Sheol might be for him, however peaceful it might be, however wonderful and joyful it might be to be in the presence of Abraham and the patriarchs, however good it might be to, to, to be in that place, he is not going to be able to go to the Lord in his temple. And the second concern in verse 11, I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of this world. Well, in Sheol, he is going to be with man. He's going to be in Abraham's bosom. But not on this world. So the emphasis in verse 11 is not being without Yahweh. It's not being without man. It's being without Yahweh in the land of the living and being without man in the inhabitants of the world. 
His only, his, his concern here is that he's not with Yahweh on earth, and he's not with his fellow man on earth. That doesn't imply that he thinks that Sheol is going to be terrible. It doesn't imply that he thinks he's going to be punished. It doesn't imply he thinks he's going to, to hell in the sense of eternal punishment. It doesn't mean those things. Let's take him at his word. Let's presume that he means what he says and says what he means. And let's work from that place. So what he's saying is, my concern, is, Yahweh, is that I cannot worship you now in the land of the living. And that I cannot be with my fellow man in the land of the living. See, what we're going to see is that Hezekiah is not contradicting Paul's for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Though, of course, the parallel is not exact because if when Paul died, he went immediately to be with Christ post-cross, whereas for these guys that wasn't the case. But there's more parallel, more continuity with Paul than discontinuity. Because if you remember that passage in Philippians, Paul's ultimate conclusion is, I'm going to stay here because I need to be here. Why? Because for me, no, for me, dying is gain. I'm staying here. Why? For you. For you. And this, I believe, is Hezekiah's point. Um, verse 12 my dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent here we have a few um, figures of speech for death firstly his dwelling uh, that is his body is plucked up and removed like a shepherd's tent a shepherd would travel around vast areas would live in tents and the tents would be picked up that's how they travel through the wilderness they'd have their tents there's the big tent the tabernacle but there's also their tents that they live in the tent of meeting and they would have to move them as they traveled and so it is that his body is being taken up and removed and going he's going to go from one place to another and so he seals sees the, um, the brevity of life in terms of a shepherd's tent being moved. Another parallel here, another figure of speech, as it were, is like a, or a simile rather, like a weaver I have rolled up my life, he cuts me off from the loom. And so his life is being rolled, being rolled, unrolled, and then snip. It just comes suddenly. And it just emphasizes the, the swiftness, the swiftness. Because there you are, and we, some of you in the Bible and plan have been reading this, there'll be periods of time where the Israelites would stay in the same place for an extended period of time, for days, weeks, even months. I can't remember exactly which, which reference that was, but we read that in the last few days, didn't we, Jen? And um, Book of Numbers, yeah? Yeah, Numbers. And, and, and there, there we are, and, and they're staying there, and then suddenly God would say, okay, time to go. Get your tents, off you go. There you are, unrolling, 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 unrolling the string, and snip, gone. So what is being spoken of in these expressions is the swiftness. He's just living his life, and then suddenly, God says it's up. From day to night, you bring me to an end. The idea is... <clears throat> that you're going from day to night quite quickly. The idea of the day is the bright day. There you are in the middle of a bright day and boom, darkness, suddenly, night. And this is the thing that is emphasized here and we have this expression from day to night being repeated again in the following verse. Verse 13, I calmed myself until morning like a lion he breaks all my bones. From day to night 
you bring me to an end. The emphasis here is twofold. Firstly, obviously, with the repetition of from day to night, there is the repetition of the point that the, the various similes were, were describing, which is there he is, it's bright day, boom, darkness. There he is, he's unraveling, boom, he's cut. There he is living his life, and suddenly he's cut off. There, you know, his tent has to be moved. That's it. So it's just, he's just going about his life, and then suddenly his life comes to an end. For many of us, we'll die in old age. And we will gradually get older, and gradually get older, and gradually get older, and things will get creakier and more painful, and we won't move so well, and things won't work quite as well as they used to. And this death will, 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 will approach death gradually and slowly. But for some people, death just comes, boom, like that, out of nowhere. And sometimes in our lives, we get something that is, that is kind of closer to the latter, but not quite. And I think that's what Hezekiah did. Many of you will have known people in your own family, your own friends, where you're going through your life, and then there's suddenly a diagnosis. Man, I've been struggling, I've been in a bit of pain. What is it? I don't know. I should go and see the doctor. Oh, I don't want to go and see the doctor. It's, yeah, well, maybe I will. Okay, let's get an appointment. Finally, you go to the doctor. Oh, what's this pain? What is this pain? I've been struggling with this and that and what have you. Well, actually, you've got stage four cancer and you've got months to live. Happens a lot. Happened to my stepmother. Just going about your life, inconvenience and a bit of pain. Suddenly, boom, you've got months. That's it, just months. Some, sometimes it's less. Sometimes a bit longer. That seems to be Hezekiah's kind of situation. <clears throat> that there he is going about his life, and then there is this situation, boom, and you're like, wow, this is it. Suddenly out of nowhere, bright day to night. And so the swiftness is really being emphasized here. But the other thing that's being emphasized in these verses, in, this, in the repetition of this phrase, from day to night you bring me to an end, is you bring me to an end. And that is clearly the thing, if in verse 12 the emphasis is more on the swiftness of the end, in verse 13 the emphasis is more on the work of God in this. I calm myself until morning, like a lion he breaks all my bones. God is the one breaking his bones. We see this a lot in Lamentations. Jeremiah speaks in similar terminology. You have done this to me. You have done that to me. And of course, both of these prophets find a, a rich heritage of such thinking from the Psalms. You, O Yahweh, have broken me. You, O Yahweh, have crushed me. And we read these passages and we get uncomfortable and the degree to which you get uncomfortable with this kind of thinking is the degree to which your mind has been infiltrated by modern Christian thinking rather than permeated by Scripture. Because this is a, a clear and consistent teaching. When we embrace the sovereignty of God, then we embrace that there is a God who can turn away trouble at a moment's notice. Of course we believe that. Why else would we cry out to him in the time of trouble? We will, will be saying, oh God, please take this sickness from me. Unless, of course, you can't. I'm, I'm just checking on the off chart. I mean, is, is, that, is that our understanding of sovereignty? Or do we believe that he could take that at a moment? At a moment's notice, in, in a blink of an eye, he could say, okay, we're done with this. Just like he did for Hezekiah. 
He can heal cancer. He can heal any kind of sickness, anything that, that, that impacts us and what have you. And yes, we may not be kind of, kind of raving wild charismatics, but we, we believe just as equally and just as passionately that God is a God who heals. He is able to heal at any given moment. And if we believe that, then it is equally true that if God does not heal us, it's not because he's not able to, it's because he's chosen not to. If God allows sickness to come, if God allows trials to come, if God allows difficulties to come, then that is by his sovereign hand. No, God doesn't do evil, but you betcha God allows evil. He will allow sins to be done against us. He will allow hardship to come towards us because he has his own purposes that are beyond us, beyond our thinking, beyond our understanding. God is the one attacking him like a lion, breaking his bones. Imagery that is very common in scripture, in Psalms, Lamentations and elsewhere. So then in verse 14, this um, kind of concludes the acknowledgement phrase of this psalm. He says, like a swallow or a crane, I chirp and I moan like a dove. Well, I don't want to suggest that the accuracy of the translation of the Hebrew here allows us to be quite as precise as we might like to be. Pardon me. With, re- with regards to the precise birds. But what is clear is this, that we have three birds. And the birds will get up and they will sing, or they will squawk, or they will whatever, but they will make their noises. And what he's saying is that he is like this. He is like this. If, if you have been through any extended period of mental anguish, of crying out to God and getting no answer, then you may understand this. Because you go from the, oh Lord, we come to you, we've had this diagnosis, and it's very difficult, and so we ask you, Sovereign Lord, would you so graciously come and intervene at this point? And then kind of maybe a month or so later, you're like, Lord, just please help us, Father, please. And then a little bit after that, when things get really desperate, you're just like, Lord! You become a squawker, a chirper, a babbler. He's used this word chirp previously to speak of those who are just babbling and muttering. In other words, the point here is that Hezekiah has gotten to the point where his controlled, rational, oh Lord, please help, just becomes a, a noise, a chattering, a babbling. Why? Well, you see the parallel here in the next verse, next phrase rather. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh, isn't that one of the themes of the Psalms of Lament? You just pray and you pray and you pray and you keep praying and you keep praying. And it's just sometimes so hard to keep praying. Your eyes get weary from looking upwards. I know you love me. And I know you're sovereign. And I've cried and I've screamed and I've mourned and I've wailed and I've chirped and I've squawked time after time after time. And I haven't got much squawking left in me. 
I still believe you're good. I still believe you're sovereign. I still believe you love me. But I'm not crying out quite so much. My eyes are weary from looking upwards. Friends, if that's where you are with your prayers, for those you love, for situations that don't get changed, God understands. Before God answered Hezekiah, Hezekiah confessed, my eyes are weary from looking upwards. Is that not an encouragement? He'd gone to the point where his prayers had become squawks and infrequent squawks, where he couldn't look to God as much as he used to. He's not turning his head heavenward as much as he was. And God is still sovereign and God still cares and God still heard all those prayers over all that time and God sovereignly can still answer. I'm not saying this to justify, oh, when you've prayed a few times, you just stop. Leave it. Yes, I know the Apostle Paul asked three times for God to take away the thorn in his flesh. But then Jesus tells the parable of the man knocking on the judge's door. Knock, 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 till he answers. So we want to be careful. This is talking about something specific which is a person who knows that God is good, knows that God is sovereign, wants to cry out to him, has cried out to him, but is weary of crying out to him. Their heart is crushed. And that's what he says. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. It seems as what he's saying here is twofold. Firstly, notice that the Lord here is different from the Lord at the beginning of the psalm. Before the beginning of the psalm, the Lord is capital letters, Lord. That means he's crying out to Yahweh. Lord in capitals is a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh. It is the name of God. He's pleading to him on the basis of who he is and his character. He is doing the B, beholding God. Here, when he cries out, he calls him Lord as in Adonai, as in boss, as in master. I am oppressed. He knows that God is the one who's breaking his bones. He knows that God is the one who can answer him. He's given up, pretty much. He's wise and weary from looking upwards. He is completely oppressed. And I think that it's so easy to look at a word like oppressed and to skim over it and to think, oh yeah, he's having a hard time. No, no, no. He's not just having a hard time. He is oppressed. He is crushed. He is beaten. He is broken. He's had enough. He can, he, can, he can make noises and barely look heavenward. That's how bad he is. And yet, even then, you who are Lord, you who are in charge, you're my pledge of safety. In other words, my salvation, my hope of deliverance is still in your hands. Isn't that precious? And you know what it tells us? It tells us that we can be in a place when the prayers become squawks, when the glances heavenward become less, and still there is faith. Still there is trust. There's weariness, and oppression has taken its toll. But there is still trust that God is the one who is the one who can deliver. And God is the one who can bring safety, deliverance who can answer these previous prayers. And that, my friends, in verse 14, is rock bottom. That's 
his expression of how God, over a period of time, took him to this place where he realizes he's going to die and he cries out to God and he cries out to God and he becomes overcome and his prayers become, you know, um, become minimized both in expression and in volume and he is completely oppressed but he still trusts in God and that is the end that is the bottom and verse 15 is the turn it's the turn the turnaround he says what shall I say (laughs) I don't know how you would translate this it's like I'm oppressed this is it it's as bad as it can get and then can I say? I mean, how can I express this? How, how can I tell you this tale of wonderment? I, I think that this expression here, what c- shall I say, could be read as if to say, well, you know, I'm not quite sure what to tell you here. No, 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 no. It's like, how can I tell a tale such as this? This is the turnaround. Why? Because he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. Two things here. Firstly, he's spoken to me. So God has spoken to him. In all of the healing that happened, it wasn't just the healing, that God said, hey Isaiah, go take a message. He got a word from the Lord through the prophet of God, specifically for him. That God came and spoke to him. That he was honored with God stepping in and intervening in human history. That, my friends, is the very definition of grace. That God would step in and intervene in the course of natural events. Grace. God has spoken to him. And he himself has done it. I'm not sure that that is a reference to, he just, he, he's spoken. Yes, he himself has done it. He's spoken. No, no, I think it's, he has done it. He has done what was asked for, what was pled for, what he, the, the healing that was sought after, the deliverance that was, that was cried out for, that he has done it. He has spoken and he has answered. Praise be to God. Now some people don't see verse 15 as being the turning point and they would interpret the first half differently and the reason for that is because they stumble over the second half of verse 15. It says, I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Now you look at those, that half of the verse and it looks like, oh, we're still in lament. No, 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 no. We've had the turn. This is him having been restored. And if you understand the second half of verse 15, you understand the purpose of this psalm, and you understand why verses 21 and 22, that initially seem so awkward at the end of the psalm, why they're there. Everything revolves around the second half of verse 15, here in the center of the psalm. And by the way, when you look at the psalm and the structure of the psalm, it is verse 15 that's there in the middle. It's the, it's the point from lament to restoration. It's there in the middle. It's the centerpiece. It's the gem in the middle. So what is being said? Okay, firstly, he said, I walk slowly all my years. Well, years has already been referenced, hasn't it, in the earlier part of the psalm. What was the reference to years? The reference to years were the years that he wasn't going to have. He's not going to have any more years. His years are cut off. The years have been deprived. The years have been taken away. There are no more years. That's the whole point. His life is cut off like a bit of string. His life, his body is wrapped up like a tent. His life is swiftly coming to an end. There are no more years. So the very reference here to years is a reference to the fact that he's going to continue to live. And what he's going to do when he continues to live is he's going to walk and he is going to walk slowly. 
Now this links, the slow walking links to the previous um, part of this, of this psalm. But for us to understand it, and I don't want you to turn there, I had it marked, hold on a second, there it is. Uh, I just want to read to you briefly from Psalm 42 and verse 4. It says this, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. Actually, let me read the beginning of Psalm 42. You'll know the beginning of Psalm 42. As the deer pants are flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? It's just the most powerful psalm of lament. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude keeping festival. The psalmist in Psalm 42, and it's a, um, a psalm of the songs of Korah, sons of Korah, that there in that psalm, the psalmist is in a very similar situation to Hezekiah. There is great oppression, mental anguish, there is great suffering, God seems distant. In the Psalm 42, God is referred to as just simply as God, Elohim. The God who is distant up in the heavens. Not Yahweh, not the God with relationship, not the God in your midst, but the distant God. And God is there, away, separate. He cries out. God doesn't answer. He simply has t- tears and tears and tears and mockery and tears and tears. And he just longs for God. That's all he wants, and yet God is not there. And so he remembers in his soul how it was when he would go to the temple to worship God. He wants to be able to worship with joy again. And it talks about him leading them in procession. So much of the worship in the temple involved procession. Or, as we have it here, walking slowly. So the reference to walking slowly here, I think, has double meaning. I think that the main, clear, literal meaning of it is his walking slowly, meaning his procession and his worship. Because that, contextually, is what he's been saying. He said, I'm not going to be able to go and see the Lord anymore. I'm not going to be able to go to the temple anymore. I'm not going to be there with my fellow man anymore. That was the concern that he had, remember? So now what's he going to do now that he has life? Oh, now I'm going to worship the Lord. Now I will go in procession. Now I will walk slowly. But as well, I think there's perhaps a deeper level where walking in Scripture throughout, certainly in the New Testament, but there's there's elements of it in the Old as well, where walking is how we live. And so the idea is not that he's going to live his life slowly, make the most of it, although there may even be an implication of that, but rather he's going to, in the way that you would make slow procession, I am going into the temple of God, and here we are, and we're going up these steps, and we're making this procession up the steps. Some of you will know the Feast of Tabernacles, that the Psalms of Ascent were sung one step. Now we're going to sing the first psalm. Up another step. Now there's the next psalm. You know, that's the psalms of ascent. That there was a slow progression. They're treasuring the worship of God. I had no more life. Now I have years. I will treasure those years. 
Not what we're what we're, we're about when you people who get saved later in life. Then I was wasting my life, and now I'm saved, but I'm old. So what do I do? I walk slowly. I I give my life to the Lord in worship with the time that He's given me, the time that remains, and He knows how many years. Remember Hezekiah, fifteen more years. Time to walk slowly. So it's a, it's an expression that speaks of um, worship and of the worship in the temple, the thing that he sought to do. And he says that there is a reason. The reason that he's going to walk slowly is the bitterness of my soul. Now, the soul is a word that was repeated in Psalm 42 when we dipped in there briefly. The soul is the thing that is, that is grieved, that is hurt by this mental anguish, this, this oppression, this suffering. It's our soul that laments, okay? Our life. The problem that we have with this and understanding this is that we look at the word bitterness and we understand bitterness to mean how we use bitterness. So if I were to say to you, oh, you're a bitter person, you're like, oh, oh you, you, well, well, how do you know my heart? I'm not bitter. I, I forgive people. I'm very good at forgiving. I'm not a bitter person. I don't hold grudges. I'm not bitter. Because that's how we interpret the word bitterness. That's not what the word means in Scripture. In fact, that meaning of bitterness is a meaning... I could and I have done entire sermons on this, but just very brief summary. That we understand bitterness today to mean how we respond to someone. We are hurt, and how do we respond to that hurt? If we have a, a, a hurtful response, then we call that response bitterness, don't we? So somebody is mean to you and they're nasty to you and then you in your heart, you have nastiness towards them. Even if you don't express it. Oh, that nasty person, they're horrible to me. I don't really like them. Bitterness. Yes? That's how we understand it. But the word in English originally, not even in Hebrew, not even in Greek, the word even in English originally for bitterness used to mean the hurt that was done to us. And that old meaning of bitterness we still retain in various idioms. We talk about a bitter wind. We talk about a bitter pill to swallow. Bitterness was something that was harm done to us without any implication of us then responding with a harmful attitude or harmful actions in response. Over time, Now, even back in biblical times, you could have bitterness in your soul and that bitterness, that hurt caused to you could cause you to respond in a negative way. You often see that in the Bible with regards to bitterness. But that is not the definition of bitterness. That's just what often happens with bitterness. And this was the meaning of the word bitterness, the predominant meaning, even in English up until a few centuries ago. The, this, this meaning that it is the response of harm, a harmful response, us mim- mirroring, as it were, the harm done to us, even if it's just in our hearts. That being bitterness, that's only become the primary meaning of the word in English in recent centuries. So when you see the word bitterness in the Bible, it doesn't mean somebody with a bad attitude. It means somebody who's hurting, somebody who's in pain. Somebody who has anguish in their soul. Do you understand that? On that principle alone, there are literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of sermons about Naomi in the book of Ruth. Who, I used to be Naomi, but now I'm Mara, now I'm bitter. 
and there's been all sorts of sermons attacking her because of her bitterness, when all she's saying is, I'm in pain. But hey, isn't that what we do well in the church? Have somebody express their pain, and then we're nasty to them? We Oh, churches are often experts at that. No, no, no. We have to have the acknowledgement of our pain. We have to be able to safely do that and allow others to safely do that, as Hezekiah has done here. So long story short, when we come to the end of verse 15, he's now, because God has spoken to him, and God has healed him, he is now going to walk slowly. He is going to have a worshipful life for the years that he has been given. And this is only going to happen because of the bitterness of his soul. Right? What's he saying? He's saying, I would have wasted my life even more had God not almost taken it away from me. Isn't that the truth? You go through your life... And you're living your life and you're wasting your life and your life is, is living for yourself and your own pleasure and your own delights. And you're walking away from the Lord and you don't care for the things of the Lord. And then suddenly, boom, God brings pain into your life. Just like that. And you're confronted. And you who knew God but, but dismissed him. You who knew who he was but didn't, look, didn't live for him. You're suddenly crying out to him in your time of need. I know many of you have testimonies that are pretty much that, paraphrased. That's it. I was living my own life, and then I was, God put me in pain, and in my pain I cried out to God, and now I live for God. That is a testimony that is repeated just person after person after person after person throughout history. And Hezekiah is essentially saying the same thing. So Hezekiah, having given us the acknowledgement of his pain, of his oppression, of the, angst, of the um, anguish of his soul, he then says, what shall I say? God spoke to me, he healed me, and so now I am going to live for him, and I'm going to live for him because he hurt me. Because he hurt me, I will now live for him. It's just the most bizarre thing to people to understand this. To see the mercy of God in the harshness of his arm. His arm reaches out and crushes us and crushes our pride and stops us in our tracks. And it seems nasty, it seems unpleasant. And you say, God, I wouldn't do that to someone I love. Why would you do that to me? And the answer is because I love you more. I love you more. It's only because of the bitterness of his soul that he's going to walk slowly for the remainder of his years. And so in verse 16, and I think this all becomes a bit clearer as we press on now. In verse 16, he says, O Lord, again, notice here the repetition of Adonai, God is master. By these things men live. What are these things? Well, contextually, these things are, it could be God speaking and God healing, but I think more accurately, if we look at the previous verse, it's these things are God intervening with bitterness of soul so that people turn to him. That's the these things. That's what he's been referring to, is it not? So he's saying that by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. In other words, he has been restored because of the bitterness of his soul. And other men were able to live because of the bitterness of their souls. God has intervened in their lives as well. He has brought life through that oppression of the soul. And so, 
He says, oh, restore me to health and make me live. I think rather than that being a plea, it's proper, uh, more properly translated, you have restored me. There is a, um, he, he's there in the context saying, oh, restore me, and because God has restored him. It's not that he needs to be restored at this point. That was the cry, and God answered that cry. But why is it so relevant here in verse 16? Because the cry was to return him to health, get rid of his sickness, right? But also, make me live. If you have cancer, if you have a terminal disease, would you cry out for God to heal you? I guess so. I certainly would. Why? I mean, if you're a Christian, why? Why, why ask God to heal you? Seriously. You're going to be dead in a, in, a, in a week, in a month, in a year. Why ask God to heal you? You're going to go and be with Jesus. It's better, isn't it? Why would you ask God to heal you? He's asking not just for healing. He's asking for life. And it's by these things that men live. It's by these things that life comes. And so the recollection of the prayer is that the prayer was a restoration of life that he might live. That I might worship you, Lord, in the temple. That I might be there with my fellow man in the temple. That was verse 11, was it not? This parallel between God and man. I, I can't worship God in Sheol. I, I can't be with God in Sheol, more accurately. I can't be with my fellow man in the land of the living. There's things that I can do here for you. I want to live now for you. How many of us could say that? How many of us could say, heal me so that I might truly live? That I might pour my life out for you more than I have done? That I might not waste my life to the degree that I have wasted it? How many of us could truly say, that is the motive for our prayer? We have in this psalm of Hezekiah, I think more than anything else in all of this, we have this, this reminder that the basis of our prayers need to be God. Not us, not our comfort, not our well-being, but God. Heal me that I might live, and I might live for you. That's the implication of what's going on here. And so he goes on, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. Does 15 not become more clear now? It's for my welfare. Welfare? That's a funny word, isn't it? That's your health and your living. That's the very things he asked for. He prayed for his welfare, and so God says, You want welfare? I can give you welfare. Here, have bitterness. Because you can't have the welfare, you can't have the life, you can't have your spirit lifted up, you can't live like you want to live unless you have bitterness. It's a hard lesson for Christians to learn. But it's very, very true and universally so. We see it all the time in Scripture. We spent a year going through it in First Peter. We've seen it in James with regards to trials. You want to live God's way. You want to live a life that's pleasing to God. You want to be faithful to God. You ask Him for it. He'll give it to you. But it's going to come in trials. It's going to come in difficulties. It's going to come through tears and anguish of soul. There is no other way. Never. Ever. And so it was for His welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, and you have cast my sins behind your back. I don't think that implies that he was going to die because of his sins. I think the context is very, very clear here. The context is this. 
The God who gave him bitterness because he loved him, delivered him, delivered him from the pit of destruction. Pit is, it seems to always be parallel in the Old Testament with Sheol. Pit of destruction is not damnation. Pit of destruction is death. And he's been delivered from death and he's cast his sins behind his back. We have a very similar expression, don't we? When we make a change in our lives. You say, well, you used to do this and you used to do that. So that's in my rear view mirror now. That's what we say, isn't it? We didn't have that expression then because we didn't have cars then. But the same idea is here, is it not? That my sins are now behind my back. In other words, Hezekiah is saying, the way that I'm going to live my life now is different. It's less sinful. It's more worshipful. It's more dedicated to you. How did that come about? Through bitterness. Through bitterness. Through hardship. Through trial. Through anguish of soul. Verse 18, for Sheol does not thank you and death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. You see how it all comes together now? Those of you who are familiar with this stuff, you'll be seeing the chiastic structure, the things he was saying in verse 11 about the worshipping alongside. That, that's where he's at now. He's back there. He, he's saying, you know, I can't worship you in, in the... Um, in the pit. I'm not thanking you. I'm not praising you. Here I am saying thank you for saving me. If I was in the pit, I might be okay, but I wouldn't be worshipping you and thanking you for this, for your faithfulness. The one who is living gives you thanks. And I think there's a lovely little touch here at the end of verse 19 that is specific to Hezekiah. It's not necessarily true of us all, though it does illustrate a principle I think is true for us all. He says, the father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Well, let's deal with the specifics and let's deal with the principle. Hezekiah, as best we can understand, did not have (coughs) an heir. When God says you're going to die, get yourself in order, part of getting his life in order is, pardon me, preparing his will. Who's going to be king after him? Which relative? Well, it's easy, it'll be your firstborn son. Didn't have a firstborn. Didn't have a son. And so God gives him 15 years, and we know this for a fact, that he had a son called Manasseh. What's he saying here? He's saying, as a father, I'm going to make known to the child that you've given me your faithfulness. He's got 15 years. I want to talk about the principle here, but the specifics are just fascinating. He's about to die. He has no heir. God gives him life. Says you've got 15 more years. Here's your son. You've got 15 years. Let's say, you know, Mrs. Hezekiah gets pregnant, gives birth. I mean, you've got until that kid basically gets just beyond bar mitzvah age. You get the privilege of raising that child to the point where he takes the law upon himself. (coughs) But you don't get any longer. And he says, I'm going to tell that boy about your faithfulness. Those of us with kids know you get one chance. You get a chance to tell them about the Lord and that's it. And it's done. And there's nothing more important. And Hezekiah had an astonishing privilege. He had the privilege of bitterness. He had the privilege of standing before the gates of Sheol. Childless. With no heir. That was a privilege. Because then when God restored to him, in answer to his tearful pleas, 
and gave him 15 more years. Do you think he was focused on raising that son? You betcha he was focused. And then that then leads us to the principle. The principle is this. That the, the time that was given was now to leave sin in the rearview mirror, to live a worshipful life, and to devote yourself to God. If you live for yourself, if you live for your own comfort, if you live for your own pleasure, you're going to get hurt again and again and again as God beats you, breaks you again and again and again. Because he loves you too much for you to live a lie. To live a life that seeks only its own comfort. You can seek pleasure because the greatest pleasure is found in God and in knowing him and worshipping him. And then glorifying his name. So seek it. Seek pleasure. But know where to find it. But if you go and simply seek the pleasures of this world, if you're a true believer, God is going to break you again and again and again. And each time he breaks you, you know what's going to happen? You're going to have a little bit more sin left behind. And you're going to be that little bit more focused. And that little bit more devoted. And my advice to you all, my advice to myself is devote yourself to God fully now that he need not break you quite so much. Because if you are his child, he loves you and he loves you too much to allow you to not be disciplined. And so, you will be trained as Hezekiah was trained. He had his mindset and he is going to make known to the children the faithfulness of God. Let's just wrap this up as we end in verse 19 this this whole section Um, it kind of summed up quite nicely in verse 20 Yahweh will save me, we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord, the house of Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh we are going to worship Yahweh, we know who you are, we'll go to the temple we'll go and we'll worship, we're committed that's us guys, here on a Sunday night when we're tired and exhausted and want to go and sit at home and put our feet up and watch something on TV or just switch off. And we're here we are because we need him. We need him so badly. And we want to devote ourselves to him. And praise God that he allowed us to go through the trials that we've been through, that we might have that focus. And, and, and let's just turn again in our minds at least to the words of Paul in this regard and I hope you'll see the parallels here more clearly now Paul said for me to live is Christ but to die is gain but he says that I'm going to stay here for your sake it's better for you that I remain your life is not your own it was bought with a price you say well I'm going to live for God then what does that look like? it looks like living for other people I say this again and again and again. I will be saying this like a scratch record for as long as I'm in ministry. I will say it, and I will say it for 10 years, and people will still not get it, so I will keep saying it. But when you come to church, you do not come to church simply because I need to be fed, I need to get ministered to, I am feeling like I need something. That's wonderful. That's so much better than 90% of people, but it's not good enough. It needs to be, I'm going to go to church because somebody else might be there who needs my ministry. 
Somebody else might be there that I can encourage, that I can lift up, that I can befriend, that I can help, that I can get to know, that I can pray for, that I can minister to because God gave me his Holy Spirit for this very purpose. Hezekiah understood that him being given these years meant him worshipping God, that's the emphasis on God, Lord in the land of the living, but also for man in the land of the living. Because our faith is not an isolated faith. It is a faith that is a corporate faith, that we minister one to another. How much more so in the new covenant when we have the indwelling Holy Spirit empowering us to that very work of ministry. But the principle was even true in the Old Testament. That Hezekiah is there saying, well God, save me, heal me, restore me, because then I can worship you and then I'll be with people. I can be with people here in the land of the living. In other words, there is an implication and outworking of my faith in the lives of those around me. And that is seen, I think, clearly in this last couple of verses of the psalm. Isn't it a great psalm, by the way? Man, we need psalms like that. We do sing some songs that are like that. There are some of the songs, one of the ones this morning that we sung, that speaks about the times of trial and God bringing us through and what have you. And I mean, these are powerful things. We need to have these references to lament and bitterness in our worship songs. I, I, I loathe the fact that too many Christians, their, their worship, well, first of all, most Christians' worship songs aren't biblically accurate, period, full stop. But, um, you know, the, the, I think that even in churches with good worship songs, we far too much overload our, our repertoire of worship with songs of rejoicing and songs of, of happiness and songs of, oh, isn't the Lord good and isn't the Lord wonderful and blah, blah, blah. You look at the book of Psalms, there's plenty of Psalms like that. These are good songs, right? But there's a lot of lamenting in the Psalms as well. There's much anguish of soul. And I can't help but think we don't get our balance very, very good. And I'm, I'm thankful that, that Jen's been so open to to having these kind of songs in our repertoire that we talk about hardships, we talk about trials. I think we're still uncomfortable. I think modern worship songwriters, they'll, they'll deal with it in a couple of lines in the verse and then quickly move on. We're not quite ready to do it like the psalmist did it, are we? You know, oh, my tears, are, my tears are, are gone. I'm worn out from crying. You've broken my bones, the bitterness of my soul. Let's do another couple of verses of that. It's not something that I think many churches would pick up on, but we need to. Because there's richness here in this. Anyway, all that is to say that hopefully I think we understand now why we have verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, Isaiah had said, let them take, he had said, past tense, it had happened previously, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. The healing methodology. Why on earth are you telling us this now at the end? How on earth does that fit in? Well, whether there was a boil or a tumor or whatever it was that was swelling that was causing him to be at the point of death, there was an application of figs to it. That, to me, says that two things. Firstly, there are deeds that must be done as acts of faith. God says, do this and you'll be healed. You have to act in faith. And secondly... 
It's not like, you know, do this and boom. It seems to me to be an implication that there has to be a way of treating it. That, that perhaps Hezekiah was healed in what we might call a more of a normal form. I'm guessing that if you have cancer and you're applying figs to it, that it might, we might call it more alternative than normal. But I mean normal in the sense of um, there is a process and a procedure and you gradually get better rather than God just saying be healed and it's done. Why is that relevant? Because there was an extended time of anguish and bitterness and a response that was required in the midst of that bitterness, a response of trust in the midst of that bitterness. But more pointedly in verse 22, Hezekiah also had said, so Isaiah says this, this is what you've got to do, and Hezekiah also said, and this is his response to Isaiah, what is the sign that I shall go to the house of Yahweh? That's how it all began, folks. Hezekiah turned to God, took his, the acknowledgement of his anguish, beheld who God was, and cried out to him, and he went there. And he went to the house of worship. It was when Hezekiah was turning to God that God, then in an extended period, turned the heart of Hezekiah, that Hezekiah is able to say, don't just make me better because I'm in pain and I don't like it. Don't just make me better because, because you know, you like me, be nice to me kind of thing, you know. He says, make me better because there are people I can minister to and I can worship you and I want to make the most of my years in a way that perhaps I haven't done to this point. And what, has, what Isaiah does at the end of the song is he points us back to the beginning, that it was a desire to come to the house of the Lord. It was a desire to worship God. It was a desire to cry out to God that the sickness was, in, was to induce in the first place and that was to bring the productivity that characterizes the end of Hezekiah's life. And so we come to an end of this chapter. We have a little bit more of Hezekiah in chapter 39 to wrap up the first part of Isaiah. But I want to leave you with this question tonight. What do you desire most? Comfort or transformation? What do you desire most? To be ministered to or to minister? The answer to those two questions are so important because your loving Father will act because he loves you if the answers aren't quite right. If you desire comfort rather than transformation, then you will experience discomfort so that you are transformed. And if you seek only to be ministered to, then you will have to go through bitterness, through pain, until you realize that you are here for others and not just for yourself. Such is the nature of the life of the people of Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the psalm of Hezekiah. May we learn from it, may we grow because of it, and Lord, may we see our suffering differently because of it. May we be able to put our sins in the rearview mirror and press on because you graciously broke us, because you love us so much. Oh, sovereign God, may we trust you even in the pain, even in the anguish. May we trust you. 
Amen. Thank you.